Close Source is brought to you by the following supporters. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. And Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnicwear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is no stranger to stomach problems induced by a stressful workplace. Oh, the stories I could tell. (laughs) I'm your host, Amanda. Today's episode is part two with the one and only Selena Sanders. I know you loved the last episode. If you thought that one was awesome, get ready for this one. I feel so lucky to have such an incredible guest on the pod. Before we get back into the convo, we have some other important housekeeping to do. First off, I wanted to thank all of our new Patreon supporters. I'm so grateful for all of you, and I hope I don't mispronounce your name. So here goes. Chelsea Harris was my very first patron. Thanks, Chelsea. I've never met a Chelsea that I didn't love. Seriously, like all of you Chelsea's are the best, so... It makes sense that they're a Chelsea would be my first patron. <laughs> Next, we have Lem Huntington, who once drank a whole bottle of Fernet with me in Buenos Aires while I gave him and his brother a tarot card reading. Also, we once had drinks and snacks at the Russian Tea Room, and it was incredibly luxurious. Thank you, Lem. Jenny Martin is the very talented maker behind Recycled Lovers. I urge you to check out all of her amazing quilt upcycling on Instagram, where you'll find her at Recycled Lovers. Seriously, her stuff is so rad. Next, we have another Jenny, but this one is with an I, Jenny Bocut, who has the best name ever, and I hope she becomes the lead singer of a super cool girl band. Thanks, Jenny. Meg Chellu is not only an official clothes horse patron, but she's also the person behind Scavenger Vintage. Her styling vibe is like so fresh and different from so much of the other vintage shops out there. You should definitely check it out. It's really inspiring. You can find it at scavenger underscore vintage on Instagram. Also, Meg is based in Pittsburgh, and I'm starting to realize that like Pittsburgh is filled with super rad people. Dustin and I are already fantasizing about like a clothes horse recording tour when we, where we like travel around and interview people in real life, which feels wild because I haven't been able to do that at all. Of course, we'll do this after the pandemic, but Pittsburgh will definitely be a stop. Okay. Well, anyway, back to the patrons. Next, we have Elena Butler, who is such a super rad supporter of the pod. I'm actually going to answer another question she asked me in a few minutes. So hold tight. She also signed up for a Pegasus membership, and she's gifting the ad that comes with it to Shift, a clothing brand based in Astoria, Oregon, which is one of my favorite little towns ever. So thank you so much, Elena. Just thank you for your generosity. Celicia Fingerhut is another patron, and you might remember her from our episodes about off-price. Someday, when the pandemic has passed, Celicia and I are going to have a dinner party exclusively composed of food from TJ Maxx and 
you're going to want to be on the invite list. <laughs> Next is Than Hedman, one of my coworkers at my last job and just an all-around lovely person. So thank you so much, Than. Jillian Masland not only inspired the horse-themed tier system, but she also became a patron. It's like, that is some friendship. She's a real chip connoisseur, but she seems to have transitioned into pizza during the pandemic, which... I try not to be concerned about, and hopefully she's still enjoying chips. Jillian, please tell me you're still eating chips. Uh, next is my friend Jillian Maniscalco. Jillian, I hope I didn't blow your last name there. She's an extremely talented print designer, a crockpot enthusiast, and she's my pandemic walking buddy back in Philadelphia. And she's kind of the only thing I've missed from Philly since we moved, and I'm so grateful to have her as a patron. Both Maggie and Katie Bond... The sisters behind Salt Hats are also patrons, and they were amazing guests on the pod. If you haven't listened to their episodes yet, I urge you to drop everything and do so right now because you don't want to be the only person who hasn't heard the I eat ass credit card story. Uh, Cell Block Tango is a weekly roundup of the best vintage, and it's also a patron of the pod. I recommend signing up for the new email newsletter like ASAP. You'll find more on Instagram at cellblocktango, and that's cell spelled S-E-L-L, so remember that, or you might have a hard time finding it. Chloe Weatherly is a longtime friend, and I happen to know she's an aficionado of a well-organized fridge, and she's another patron, so thank you so much, Chloe. Next, we have Tori Halligan, certified cat lover and actual book reader. Listen, when a patron loves books and cats, it's like extra super meaningful to me. So thank you, Tori. Becky Tonkin is the proprietor of the aforementioned shift in Astoria, Oregon, and she's a patron. You can check out her work on Instagram at shift Astoria. Anna Bartoli is not only a patron of Close Horse, but she's also the owner of Stateside Collective, an online vintage store based in Las Vegas, Nevada. So you know she's got some good stuff. And Anna, I'm apologizing now and really to everyone else whose name I said so far, if I've mispronounced your name. I mean, one of my biggest phobias is actually mispronouncing someone's name. So I will avoid saying a person's name for as long as possible if I'm not completely confident in the pronunciation. That was like a really big confession for me to make right now. <laughs> anyway, to continue, Helen Freider is our first international patron. She's from the UK. Thank you, Helen, for making me feel very successful and international. And in case you missed it, Picnicware and Salt Hats are Pegasus sponsors, so thank you so much. In fact, thank you to everyone who's supporting the pod. If you are interested in joining this illustrious group of rad people, you can find a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Your support helps me, well, you know, pay to keep the show going. So thank you so much. It feels great to be supported in doing something that I love so much. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, I have a question from Elena that I'm going to try to answer. And like all things we talk about here on Close Horse, it's complicated. So here's her question. What is free trade? Are all free trade companies definitely treating their people well? I started researching this myself when I learned that Ace and Jig is pursuing their free trade certification, and the topic is surprisingly opaque. Well, it kind of is. <laughs> I feel like we talk about a lot of things that are both complicated and opaque here, and fair trade is no exception. So according to Wikipedia, 
Fair trade is an arrangement designed to help producers in developing countries achieve sustainable and equitable trade relationships, which sounds great. It seeks to promote greater equity in international trading partnerships through dialogue, transparency, and respect. It promotes sustainable development by offering better trading conditions and securing the rights of marginalized producers and workers in developing countries. I mean, this sounds so good. Like, what could go wrong, right? Fair trade is built around three core beliefs. The first is that producers, so farmers, if it's an agricultural product, and craftspeople, if it's a handicraft, they're given the power to connect with consumers, meaning that we, the consumers, can engage with them as actual people and treat them with the respect that they deserve, and then therefore pay an appropriate and fair cost for their work, right? That sounds good. Next, and I'm not going to argue with this, our current global trade practices promote an unequal distribution of wealth between both nations and people, which, yeah, like I said, check. Totally agree with that. And lastly, spoiler, this one totally ties in with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which you know I love to talk about. Buying products from producers in developing countries at a fair price rather than the exploitive bargain basement prices that we usually see is a much more efficient way of promoting sustainable development and improving quality of life, much more efficient than traditional charity and aid. To be honest, this all sounds amazing, right? And I wish we were taking the same approach to the world's garment workers. So let's talk a little bit about how it works, okay? The fair trade movement began in the 60s, and it was originally planned to include both agricultural goods like coffee, chocolate, produce, and cotton, but also handicrafts. But by the 80s, handicraft sales were slowing because Western consumers thought the aesthetic was, and this is a quote, tired and played out. Through the 90s and early aughts, there was some innovation in terms of product category and aesthetics, along with a certain trendiness attached to the artisanal nature of these goods. You know, these sorts of decor and fashion trends can be super cyclical. And the combination of those trends with the innovation in terms of the products allowed handicrafts to become about a quarter of total fair trade sales. So they've kind of been hovering at that point since the turn of the millennium, about a quarter. So the other 75% is agricultural products. Until the late 80s, most of these fair trade products were only offered in specific fair trade stores, which, I mean, by nature sort of limited the scope of the business. They just weren't reaching as much of the population as they could have. The solution was to get more of these products, specifically the agricultural ones like coffee, spices, quinoa, and chocolate into mainstream stores. And to do that, a special fair trade label had to be created so customers could understand why these products were slightly more expensive. And I'm sure by now you have bought some fair trade coffee or chocolate. I've definitely even bought some fair trade quinoa. I haven't really looked at the spices I've bought, but I guess I should. I tend to buy those in bulk. But fair trade, it's safe to say, is in a lot of stores that we shop in, both kind of your regular mainstream grocery stores. You might see it at Target. You're definitely going to see that kind of stuff at Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. Now, psychologically, these labels are very effective at giving customers a feeling of, you know, making a good choice and performing a good deed. After all, these products are lifting people out of poverty and paying them fairly for their work, which is 
it sounds so simple, but it's just so hard, it seems, for people to be paid fairly for their work. It's a recurring theme around here. In order to carry this fair trade label, like not just everyone gets it. Well, okay, we'll get to that part. But in theory, not just everyone gets to slap a fair trade label on what they're growing. A product must be first certified by Fair Trade International, which is also known as the FLO. I don't know if anybody calls it flow, but I like the idea of that. The crops must be grown and harvested in accordance with the international fair trade standards set by flow. And the supply chain must have been monitored by flow to ensure the integrity of the labeled product. We're talking about all of the growing practices involved. So pesticides, soil use, crop rotation, all of those things. And fair trade handicrafts also must be certified in terms of like the kinds of people producing them and the conditions in which they work. When we talk about clothing and textiles, we are generally referring to fair trade certified cotton. And it's it's a pretty big industry at this point. By 2015, almost 75,000 cotton farmers in developing countries had obtained fair trade certification. Ostensibly, fair trade cotton is superior because the producers are paid a fair price, which lifts the producers out of poverty. This all sounds great, right? Well, as I hinted at, there are some issues. One of the main controversies or criticisms is around the more premium price we pay for fair trade products. It's especially egregious in the world of fashion. You're probably not surprised. Because there's no transparency around how much of that increased retail price is actually going to the producers of the cotton. Studies have actually indicated that very little of it is, and instead we're just paying a premium price because, well, we're willing to. So it actually benefits the brand or retailer, not the person who produced the cotton. Furthermore, Critics say that very little of the increased price of any fair trade agricultural products make it to the actual farmers and field workers because the extra cash is pocketed by farming co-ops, these sort of nebulous businesses built around the cultivation of these crops, and even, and this is so frustrating, administrative expenses along the way. Even worse, meeting the fair trade certification standards for farming is very expensive, raising the cost of actually growing the crop by about a third, which is significant. If your rent was going to go up a third next month, you'd be really bummed out. In most cases, this increase is not fully covered by the, quote, fair pricing that these farmers are supposed to receive. And the crop yields are quite lower when following fair trade rules. So in many cases, the farmers actually make less money than they would have pre-fair trade, but, and here's the catch, they're sort of forced to participate in the free trade program or face being completely unable to sell their crops in the first place. For example, fair trade encouraged Nicaraguan farmers to switch to organic coffee, which resulted in a higher price per pound, but a lower net income because of higher costs associated with cultivation and lower yields, meaning they ended up with a lot less coffee to sell. Ultimately, so many farms had been certified free trade that it was virtually impossible to sell coffee without also becoming free trade certified. And the barrier for entry was so low that everyone can do it, and it kind of devalued the whole thing. And when everyone is free trade except for you, well, 
everyone assumes that your product is subpar, so they won't buy it. So it's like you have to do it, but everyone else is too. So there's not much of a gain. I don't know. It's, it's, it doesn't sound very fair, right? This is totally apropos of nothing, but I remember there was a lot of controversy a couple years ago uh, where, you know, Subway, the sandwich shop, it's a franchise, but it's controlled by, you know, a corporation. And basically the corporation was giving out so many of these franchises that you would find multiple locations in a very small area. And so it was kind of making it impossible to compete because there were too many places to go buy your Subway sandwich. And then to make matters worse, the corporation was requiring the franchise owners to sell sandwiches at this like rock bottom pricing as part of a promotional policy. And it was affecting their ability to make any money at all. And in fact, a lot of these franchise owners lost money and had to close up. So I guess what I'm saying is Strangely enough, Subway sandwiches have a lot more in common with fair trade cotton and other agricultural products than you might think. <laughs> and ultimately, as demonstrated by, by my Subway story, fair trade may actually be economically repressing farmers. There's a lot of talk about corruption all along the supply chain with even more money disappearing into the pockets of others along the way. But once again, if you're a farmer in certain areas, you kind of have no choice but to participate. So in conclusion, you know, I'm not really sure what the right answer is. I guess if you want to buy free trade clothing, and I'm specifically speaking to clothing, the best thing you can do is ask the brand how much of the money from that garment is actually going into the pockets of the farmer. Like, is it worth the upcharge? And... Sometimes things like free trade are actually just an effective distraction from the exploitation of garment workers. So even if the brand is using fair trade cotton, I would like to know the salary of their lowest paid worker because fair trade can be a mere marketing tool, just another form of greenwashing like recycled polyester and H&M's allegedly sustainable collections. So it's really important that we know the full picture. Basically, I'm saying demand transparency. And when it comes to things like coffee and chocolate, in general, that tends to mean that the products were organically grown. And I think that's always a better option, but don't assume that by buying the fair trade chocolate bar that you suddenly saved the world because that's not true either. Okay. Let's get back into the conversation with Selena. I have to warn you, it kind of cuts off abruptly, but it was because we were transitioned into another long topic after that, and I wanted to hold it for the next episode. So here you go, some more magic of podcasting. Oh man, Amanda, like now that I really think about going back and sort of refiguring my life, how much I've changed really. Mm -hmm. Because in my 20s, when I first started in the industry, you know, this was a world to me that was very foreign. Like I love the art of making clothes, just like from going to school and just learning the craft and the art behind design in general. That was great. But by the time I got into the industry and like worked at my first job, 
it was such an eye opener. I had no idea. The the movie Devil Wars Prada had not even come out then by that <laughs> time. You know, and I was legitimately living that life. Um my first job was um at uh, St. John Knits and, you know, a luxury brand, they're still around. Like, you know, I think they still have a small office, but they're no longer what we know them to be back then. You know, they were, you know, headquartered in this beautiful place, like in Irvine. And I mean, the most amazing and tremendous um, place because it was magical. I mean, you would get, we would get orders of skeins of Italian yarn. Like, oh, I just remember they would be um, like shipped in this like temperature controlled truck. Oh my God. And I would just, <laughs> we would, all the designers would just like stand there and like wait for them to unload because we were, it's playtime, you know? There was this beautiful swatch room. And all the swatches, there were all the patterns you can already basically make, right? There's an archive. Because think about it, it's years and years and years and years of basically building an, a library. They had a swatch room where you basically pick your yarn and then you combine and then you you write the code of your pattern that you want made. And then you go to the engineering room where they, you know, kind of program it so that each yarn, because there's so many different yarns, like boucle and like, you know, there's some that are like with like Lurex and like some that are like very wooly and like fuzzy and like just beautiful yarns in general. And you would give it to your engineer, your swatch engineer, because they would have to calibrate the stitches so that to accommodate for some of the textures of the yarn. And you would just basically wait and then they would make you this like five by five swatch and it would just like magically come out what? of the other side. It was literally like, like, you know, those like easy bake ovens, but like for <laughs> yarn. <laughs> oh my God. It was just so magical, like going in there and then every, all the ladies were wearing lab coats and it was just like so beautiful. And I, at that time too, was given the very high honor of designing the hardware for all the jackets. So I would just like sit there in a room and this was my first job. I was like 20, 22 years old, like sitting there sketching all the St. John, like, and I didn't have to use Photoshop or anything. It was all hand sketched because we had a, we had a, um, basically a jewelry and a hardware factory in Mexico and the head of the factory there would drive to Irvine. And then I would sit with him and explain the dimensions. I would pick all the different like enamels and the, the different, like kind of colors of like the finishes, you know, what kind of like golds I'd like. And there was like 50 types of golds, which was really incredible. Wow. And I would give him the specs and literally a week later, he'd come back with all my buttons, you know, and then we would just like do all these like sketch selections, which was really great because um, the creative director at that point would like, you know, give us like movies to watch. And he was like really obsessed with like Jackie O and, you know, <laughs> we watch a lot of like Bonnie and Bonnie and Clyde. And, you know, we just sit there in these like screen rooms and then sketch away. And it was just, it, I'm setting the scene as, as if this is the perfect job, right? I know, was- <laughs> I know. I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't what I thought happened. <laughs> but then. But then, yes, here we go. Basically, Mrs. Gray and the Grays who owned and built St. John were basically pushed out. They were basically gone and, you know, um, they were bought by a private company and hired a creative director who unfortunately really liked to kind of 
push his strength like as far as like it was great because he was also friends with a lot of designers from New York so every day we would have a new designer walk in like I saw Vera Wang walk in oh, one wow. day and she was like and I was wearing this shirt from Target and she looked at me she's like cute shirt and I'm like oh it's from Target <laughs> you know like it was just really funny we'd, we'd had Jason Wu like Philip Lim would come like there was just like a bunch of people that were there all the time um so he really did make it like a true design house but unfortunately the old management that was still left behind there was a lot of resentment because think about it some of these designers have been there for years mm-hmm. mrs gray used to actually gift the designers a tennis bra- bracelet with diamonds in it what and you basically get a diamond for every five years that you spend damn working. that's crazy yep, <laughs> yep. And the day of my birthday, which was literally maybe three, four months within me working there, and I was just an assistant. I couldn't design because all the head designers were designing. Assistants just did what assistants did, right? Like cut swatches and do Mm -hmm. all of the stuff that Mm -hmm. your designer wanted you to do. And literally, that was the day of the reckoning. Um, They were all, all the tennis, diamond tennis bracelets had to walk out the door. (gasps) They were all laid off. With the exception of two designers. Wow. Um, and unfortunately, I ended up working for the one designer that literally made my life a living hell. Because what happened was the new creative director walked in one day and said, okay, everybody's gone. All the designers that you know are gone. There's a bunch of assistants, a bunch of associates, and, a, and only two senior designers now. But I want you guys to all audition, basically. <gasps> I mean, this is and this classic. Was- this is, like, happening all the time. I just want to say that. Like, so- <laughs> like a movie. Yeah. Even <laughs> when you work in fast fashion, like the other side yes. of the coin here, people act like it's Devil Wears Prada. I don't understand it. Anyway, continue. (laughs) This was like at 730 at night. And he said, come tomorrow sharp at 730 in the morning. And I want you guys to show me your sketches. And I will decide who gets to design and who gets to not design. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, bring it. Like, come on, let's do it. You know? So I was like, bring it. I'm going to go home. And of course I have, I'm, I collect like vintage Vogue and, and, and stuff. So I was just like filled my, you know, my, my one bedroom apartment at that time um, and just laid everything out. And my now husband then boyfriend walked in and he, he was, he worked security then. So he was on the graveyard shift uh-huh. and he like walked out and he was like, okay, good luck. I'll see you tomorrow. And literally the next day he walks in at like four in the morning and I'm still doing oh my god stop it but i i was like i'm i'm gonna design that's what i'm gonna do like i can't do you know and so of course the next day it was again a shed of tears there were some designers associate designers who were now he was like well i don't know why they've been paying you to be a designer you can't design like just do something else so it's either you would be in technical or just considered like an assistant this design assistant terrible but interestingly enough i was really good friends with that creative designer's um personal assistant and she used to tell me she said you know what it's all a game 
um, he has these books at his house. And one of them is, it says how to manipulate others through fear. What? That's a book? Wait, apparently it exists. I'm Googling it right now. How to manipulate (laughs) others through fear. Fear. And then there was another one. I can't really say exactly like what it is, but it's something about like how to use your power to control other people or something to that to that extent, you know? So oh it's, my God. I was just like, that explains a lot because there was always these tantrums that would happen, you know, I, like it was great doing all the design work and stuff, but then, you know, my direct boss was just so upset that I now get to design a collection. So what she would do was she would tell me to do a bunch of stuff, just like random, because I was still assisting her while I was doing my design work. So okay. let's just get that clear. So my workload <laughs> was doubled. has now doubled. Yeah. And I was literally making at that time, like literally like $32,000 a year, which is insane yeah. for the amount of work that I was doing. I was doing, and on top of that, Apparently, she used to just like copy my work too. So I would just like do, and she got first dibs as far as like showing and presenting the line to her boss because she's a senior designer. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I'm told, you know, it's just like, ooh, Selena, like, don't show that anymore because that's already been approved. And I'm like, what? I haven't shown, I haven't showed this to anybody. And they're like, well, no, she's already showed it, including my swatches that I've swatched. Already. Oh my God, this is so Devil Wears Prada. And on top of that, because she would give me like mundane tasks, like go to the swatch room and I need you to organize all the swatches chronologically by year. <laughs> or, you know, go to the trim room and I want you to organize all the trims by color. Oh and my then God. After that, stop. seriously, Amanda, oh. by the time she would leave the office, by like five, th- and of course, too, while she's doing this, she's like planning birthday parties. You know, she has a personal assistant on top of me being her assistant. She was like planning out her birthday parties for her kids and like, you know, doing all of this stuff while I'm doing this work. Jeez. And then I only get to start my work literally the when she leaves at like 630 at night. So I am there until midnight, sometimes one o'clock and I have to repeat it again the next day. And I remember the creative director sat me down and was like, you're disappointing me so much, you know? And I was like, what? And he's like, I can see you're very talented, but you, you can't like own your work. Like you have no, because how, how am I able to own my work when I can't even get the work done? Exactly. He he was like, and of course I was so afraid to like rat my boss out. There was no way. I was so scared that I would, I, I basically would just apologize. And then Oh my God, you and I talked about this offline, but I feel we're among friends with your listeners. <laughs> but I literally developed a huge case of digestive issues from <laughs> this job. I mean, as you know, I was like, oh my God, me too. <laughs> and there was something like physically wrong with me, but I never connected the two and two together. Right. Like, I just didn't think that it was possible that my job was getting me sick. And finally, I had a friend who worked at this big box retailer 
you know, fast fashion from luxury, like suits that I used to design for. And, and we used to sell like a thousand dollars for a jacket. Now, a, a you know, a retailer was inviting me that was selling jackets for $15 to come work for, right? Complete opposite mm-hmm. of the spectrum. Right. Yet, you know, I thought about it and I was like, I need to leave. Like if this, if all luxury brands are like this, I can't be here. Like I'm going to kill myself literally doing this job, yeah, right? Yeah. So I I was basically I was en- enticed um again early 20s, you know, making literally like starvation wages. Um and I wasn't even getting paid sometimes like overtime, you know, cuz because mm-hmm. sometimes I because it wasn't approved, so I would clock out and uh-huh. I would just stay. Because I had to, I mean, I felt really competitive and I really want, and I looked at like the, the design offices of the senior designers and they just look so beautiful. And, um, there's this one, oh my God, I loved her Maria Lopez. If she ever listens to this podcast, she was one of the senior designers and the most, I ended up actually working for her, like probably before I quit. And I probably would have stayed if I just kept working with her, but it was just too late at that point. She just would walk in with her like Alexander McQueen, um, skirts that were just like perfectly tailored to her with her Louboutin pumps that she wore for like nine, 10 hours a day. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> she was just a magical person and I respected her. She was extremely talented and she went through such hell too. I, I would see her cry all the time. It was just really sad to see. But in my mind, I was like, oh my God, um, you know, um, I aspired to be her. Right. Like, I really wanted to be her. At the end of the day, I actually had a suit that Angelina Jolie ended up wearing in a campaign. So I still have that in my portfolio and I'm very happy that I got it from that experience. And that year when they had their catalog, this beautiful, beautiful catalog of the collection, the, the suits at the front cover were my designs. So I can actually say, I still have all of that. My, my husband is so sweet. Like he, that after I quit, he basically surprised me and he framed the catalog with the signature of the creative director and basically said that this is great. And this is like, you can now move into production. He has to, he basically had to sign everything before it moved into production. So I have the sketch and the catalog cover, which was really sweet. I love that. That, I mean, I was just, and it's beautifully matted, you know, and I, I, it was the sweetest gift ever. And I was in such a down point in my life because I love that job. It was a beautiful job, but other than the crazy, like mind control stuff and like, just because the industry allowed behaviors like that to go on. And as a young designer, you just, you know, you just basically did it and just went with the flow because you felt like you didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of go back to, to my mom's like, like the way that she kind of brought me up when I first moved here is she always said, you don't ever question authority. You are lucky to be in this country. And I, I do agree to that. She, she spent so much time, blood, sweat, and tears to try to get us here. And I wasn't going to ruin that for her or for myself. Mm -hmm. So I think I went through my career 
having that embedded in me that you don't, you don't push back. Now that I'm older, I can, oh man, like it's, it's all come out. It's always pushed back from me now, you know? Right. But when you're that young and so, um, you know, kind of like untouched yet and so moldable, Mm -hmm. you basically, you know, you basically just conform. And I went through after that, I went through several jobs, you know, that big, big box retailer. I had also, um, freelanced a lot because after the recession, um, you know, I basically couldn't find a job, but I, I booked a lot of freelance gigs. I worked for like a uniform company that made uniforms for Avon ladies. They had (laughs) uniforms? No way. Yeah. Back then. And like, I think it's still like late, 2000s. Um, wow. They still had uniforms because this company made uniforms. They used to do all of the Pan Am oh, wow. you know, uniforms. Yeah. And they, they did like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of hotels, like very expensive hotels. And so, um, and I worked with the most amazing designer there and she just had a lot on her plate, but I would come in and she was still old school. You know, she was already like, I think in her seventies by the time I worked with her. So we would hand sketch and hand draw everything and we would do it in the in kind of like in the way like Antonio I don't know if people know Antonio who is like the I think my my biggest inspiration in fashion illustration Mm -hmm. Um, we would do it in his style and we would do these big boards and presentations so there's all these like amazing experiences I've had Um, and when I worked for this shoe company basically and I guess Maybe I can talk a little bit as to why I even ended up in shoes. Yeah, because that's, um, a, that's a shift, right? Yeah, it's, it was a huge shift. So after basically a stint in luxury and then big box retail, and then all of a sudden I'm in the vendor side, because after I left the big box retailer, everybody heard that I left that company and all the vendors were like, we want her because they always used to love to hire people who worked directly with that retailer for the experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, at that point too, and they offer you a much higher salary because they know that you have that experience. Right. They don't even ask for a portfolio. They literally are like, you're, you're the fact that you have your credential here. That's, that's all that I care. Or right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so one day I got a call from a fellow Otis alumni and she was like, Hey, I saw your, um, your resume on the Otis job board. And I'm like, dude, the last time I updated that was like 2005. I've been in the industry like five years now. And she's like, I don't know. It's still there. It says you were looking for a job and we need a footwear designer. And I'm like, oh, well, I I'll find somebody to like recommend to you. And she's like, no, I want to see you. And I'm like, why? And she's like, well, because there's also this big stuff happening apparently on the footwear side that obviously apparel side, the, the apparel side didn't know, but there's also a lot of very kind of old school footwear designers that are just like stuck in their ways. Mm, and they're, yeah. and they're now considered these, if we call garmentos quote unquote in the garment side on the footwear side, there's basically just these like quote unquote, like line builders, Oh, you know, totally. I just recently learned a bunch about this and like shoe dogs and yeah, shoe dogs. Yeah. 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 And it is, it's like the shoe version of the Garmento, which are these people who have been making clothes forever. Uh, and they're, they're stuck in their ways. It's always these like much older men 
who are trying to tell you what teenage girls want to buy, right? Yes. And you're like, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. (laughs) They don't want shawls, okay? (laughs) It's really sad sometimes too, because the buying teams at retailers are getting younger and Mm -hmm. more women now, you Mm -hmm. know? So to the fact that like, you're going to put a group of very young, savvy, um, funky, like fun merchants and designers in front of a garmento or like a shoe dog, quote unquote, it's, there's a disconnect. And obviously their businesses are suffering because of that. Who's going to want to buy something, oh something my God. from this, this like smelly dude. And I had one, one time ask me if I was just working until I got married. I mean, this is like the kind of people you're dealing with. And I was like, no, why would I just work until I got married? Like, that's crazy, <laughs> you know? Uh, they're just, like, so old-fashioned. It was affecting their business. Oh, yeah, I'm For sure. sure. And so when I spoke to this, the person who was a designer there, she was like, dude, I, I've only been here, like, five months. I was a swimwear designer. And she was like, <laughs> wow, we have a new COO. And he's also, he was a merchant at um, Marshall Fields who Macy's bought. He basically is like, I need to re, I need to reconfigure this in order for this to work. We need to bring fresh, talented people and people actually who are in the apparel side because the category that they were trying to look for are seasonal footwear designers that really are not necessarily on the footwear floor pad. It's going to more be in the accessories side. So think about like your fuzzy, like winter slippers, you know, or your like summer sandals, they're all hanging footwear. That mm-hmm. was kind of the the um, position they wanted to fill. Although I ended up designing other things that were like fully built footwear. That was really the main job that they wanted to fill. But yeah. I was just so excited because one thing people may not know about me is I am a shoe addict. <laughs> I didn't know that either. <laughs> and my collection is in storage right now. And I honestly, and I told you this when we had our like pre-talk before the pod, I would probably own two homes right now if I did not <laughs> have an addiction. I mean- Oh my God. No, I mean, I hear you. I'd probably own a home if I didn't have so many clothes. <laughs> and because I also know that even if you have a cheap outfit, quote unquote, like really just like janky outfit, but if you have beautiful shoes, it makes mm-hmm. an outfit. And it's true. And also, I, I'm sorry, I was also very like sex in the city, you know, show <laughs> addict. And I'm sorry, Carrie Bradshaw, it's all your fault. It's all her fault. And I only I was such a shoe snob. I only bought designer. Only designer. Wow. So this was this was all like all my money was going to. And it's just kind of sad now because I don't even really wear him anymore. Um, just because I'm like now a mom and I, you know, I don't have really any places to go to. So my feet need some (laughs) major retraining if I'm to do that again. But good thing is my niece is actually the same size as me. So I told her when I die, I'm going to write you a know my will and you can have my shoe collection. (laughs) Wow. But I literally, I've even lined up like a shoe sample sale where, um, it's called uh, Decades. It's off of um, mm-hmm. Be- La Brea, I think. I, forget I think, so. the I think it's La Brea. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I used to line. I was always the first in line when they did their sample drops. 
And I have, <laughs> and I have owned personally owned shoes that were owned by Charlie Saron. <laughs> wow. Because I'm so short yet. I have unbelievably abnormal, huge feet. Wait, what size are your feet? I'm a nine. I wear a size nine. Oh, me nine. too. Me too. I can never find good shoes that are like secondhand or vintage. Yeah. So I'm jealous. I'm I, jealous. I don't really, again, can't buy, vin- I mean, I buy a couple of vintage pieces now, but only when I'm lucky and it's actually my size. Yeah. But never Charlize happened. was like a nine too. And you know, the guy at decades was like, would always give me the tidbit because I always bought Dior. Um, and he would say, oh my God, these were Charlene's shoes. And I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm touching Charlene's feet. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, this is such a side note. But anyway, I had so always- So you were excited to be in shoes. Yeah, even if it's like $5 hanging shoes, I'm like, it's my in, <laughs> you know, at least because I was so tired and sick and tired of fashion already at that point, you know? Oh, I hear you. Yeah. But really this footwear job, again, was a great job because the COO- was great. He obviously had a corporate background. He really treated his employees well. And the owner of the company was this sweet, sweet old man. May he rest in peace. But he was basically already in his um, late seventies and he would come to work every day. He would, and he used to still love like reading all the faxes, even if there was no more fax. (laughs) (laughs) There were stories of basically them saying like, cause we had a New York office, there was a Hong Kong office, and then we had all the different factories all over China. Um, and they would get faxes from Hong Kong and he just would, the secretary would say, just send it fax form because you know, our boss loves to read the faxes in the morning, you know, and we would just gather around and like, listen to the faxes. And until finally the new CEO was like, I think, you know, Frank, we, we can't do that anymore. We, we have better things to do, but they were great. There was only 30 people in the company, you know, profit sharing, really amazing healthcare bonuses every year. He wow. just really treated his co uh, like his, his basically his family, his work family very, very well. And the COO really believed in me to the point where basically Selena pick a country, any country you can travel there whenever you want, always on business class to any country to do shopping or inspiration. I had an unlimited budget I, I, this is, this job is seriously like, there's nothing like it that I've ever. And after I left that job, I thought I would be able to replicate that job. There was no way to replicate that job. No, yeah, definitely not. Nope. And seriously, they would, basically I was living, I basically racked up like almost like, I mean, it's disgusting to even feel proud about this now because of so much of the CO2 and emissions from airplane rides, you know, which mm-hmm. is just ridiculous. But back then I was in my early thirties, you know, I didn't have a kid yet. I wasn't married yet, you know? So it was like, I really did live my life to the the best you can imagine. I was always traveling um, mm-hmm. and I was always gone But with these traveling experiences, I got to really see the face of fashion in in a way that I would never have been able to. And that was also being embedded in the factories. And I used to do these um, basically sourcing trips. And Mm -hmm. I, I think this is something that was just like to me, 
absolutely mind blowing. Um, we would go for footwear and also apparel because there was another side of the town. It, it's called um, Guangzhou in China. Um, it's probably like um, a drive out off of Hong Kong if you like cross that bridge, you know, to get to the mainland. It's the basically the first area closest to Hong Kong. And you would go in there and there was this called the Shoe City. And it's basically selling materials for to make shoes, whether it's the rubber for the outsoles or the upper materials, whether it's in all like real leather to polyurethane leather to any sort of fabrics from jacquards to anything you can imagine, laces, whatever you can think about is in this place. And mm-hmm. I would even describe it as like the size probably of, I don't know, like Santa Monica Maybe just this, the store itself, you know, it's stores after stores after stores. And basically it's like a wet market almost like to anybody who's ever been in Asia where it's just concrete, like the forest concrete, but it's always wet because Mm -hmm. they spray it to avoid flies from like, you know, kind of circling around. And that's because there's a lot of things that get dumped on the ground, like whether it's like food from the restaurants there or just raw materials or like glue or like anything that you can imagine. And then they just hose it down and it kind of goes into this like strain or like, you know, like little drain. It just gets strained into the little drain over a ditch or whatever it it is. But it's just very narrow um, lines and lines and stalls and stalls of materials from literally from the ground up and buildings that are like 10 floors up. So think about the size of Santa Monica and then on top of that, the stalls and then the the different layers. And it's just so interesting because the moment you walk in as as a first timer, you're just so excited to like buy from the first stall, right? But my Mm -hmm. guide would always say, nope, like we got to go in, like we got to go deep in to the point where we are just lost because there's just so much ground to cover. And you can see that they have swatches. They basically just have swatches. And I would have a giant Ikea bag and I would just like dump swatches and the swatches were free. You could just take Mm -hmm. off the swatches. But if I'm really interested in something special, which is interesting because you go stall after stall and then you, you come to realize just like when you go to like a foreign country and you're buying souvenirs, they all have the same stuff. Totally. I knew you were going to say that. It's the same thing if you go to a trade show, honestly. Yeah. It's the same stuff in every booth. So it's an, it's exhausting work, but at the same time, when you find those little gems that separate one stall from the other, you basically start to negotiate and try to figure out how to get sample yardage because your plan is hopefully not to wait for them to make the, the, the materials but to just to take it now so you can go to your factory you build your shoe and then by the time you're done with your trip you can take all your shoes back to the united wow. states that's wow. kind of like the timeline and that's why we were always there three weeks at a time you know um uh-huh. so the only problem though is they look at you and they're like well we don't sample we want your business we want production business and so what happens then is i never end up getting samplings like sample mm-hmm. yardage i would Basically, we would always have a map on our trips because I covered so many parts of China, like from Pudong to Guangzhou to Zhenzhen, Ningbo, Shanghai. Like I'm I'm spouting all of these places. They exist, you guys. I'm not like making them up <laughs> because it's 
sounds like made up sometimes when I think about all the different cities I've been to in China. Uh-huh. China is such a big country, you know, and every sort of part of China is like they specialize in one thing and another, you know. So I have like my um, my jelly shoe factory is kind of in the so- southern part, like my my um, my sort of like hanging like um kind of embroidered slippers are on this side. So we would always make a pilgrimage, you know, mm-hmm. towards all of China to do this. And then I would always have to constantly make a plan and say, okay, I need you to sample this for me. And so what ends up happening is they actually now end up knocking off the materials and the swatches that I've taken from that stall in my sourcing expedition But at the same time, you think about those materials too, which I have, I'm like, oh, this is so familiar. This material is so familiar. And then you come to realize it's a swatch that I had gotten from a Korean mill like (laughs) six months ago. And I come home to the United States and I'm like, dude, that's the exact same material, color and everything. The only difference is the the quality is like, you can tell it's cheaper. Right, right. So basically it's a knockoff of a knockoff of something Korean. And probably, because I have also worked at those Korean mills, they show me all of the samples that they've cut the swatches from to show Uh, me that they are like really close to the original. And a lot of them, sometimes I've seen Chanel pieces cut up. Okay. I I was wondering about this. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I'm like, of course I'm not surprised by this because I've seen this kind of stuff time and time again, but it's important to like point out for the listeners that we are now coming to accept or at least know that everything we buy is a knockoff of something else. But how about thinking about the material mm-hmm. being a knockoff of a knockoff of a knockoff of a knockoff? Like that's how crazy this industry is. It's like, are there any original ideas anymore? <laughs> I don't honestly, and I don't believe, and correct me if I'm wrong. I think Diane von Furstenberg at some point, because she was the president of CFDA and she had been knocked off so many times print wise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she lobbied Congress to try to figure out a way to at least give certain designers um, a copyright to prints and all that. It just didn't go anywhere. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it's like, you're the most protected for prints. It's the area where you're most likely to maybe have a case. But the reality is that like suing someone for knocking you off doesn't really lead to very much. Mm-hmm. And so people just don't do it. Unless you have a lot of money and like a group of lawyers to like do right. it for you like she does. Because I I mean, I just from reading from stuff, they actually did say that her company has made actually a lot of money going after people. I mean, we my vendor got sued by her. No way. Like not yes, but not like her, we did not get sued directly but by her, they sued the retailer, obviously. And then the retailer basically just obviously passed it on to us. And then we had to figure it out with her team. Kudos to her, because I think it is really important to try to protect your intellectual property. After we got sued, the company I'd worked for, the textile designers would now have to register all of our prints. This is another added cost that sometimes like our customers didn't know mm-hmm. that, you know, was being added onto this because it takes a lot of time. And there's actually like a team or a service that you have to basically hire to like look at the original because we would always have to provide our inspiration and then the print basically our remake of the print and they would have to figure out if it's if it is within the percentage of um, modification for it to be considered 
different enough from the original. That's pretty typical. It's kind of crazy. You know, I uh, had this job, you know, working for a startup and I worked like seven days a week. My boss would just call me and text me all day, all night, no matter what. And one day I was homesick and my phone rang and it was my boss calling to tell me that a suit that we had launched resembled a dress that was being worn by Michelle Obama. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's great. I was like half asleep. I was taking cold medicine. That's great. You should run with that on social. And I drifted back to sleep and I was like, wait a minute. We have a suit that costs in total for the whole suit about $250 that looks like a Michelle Obama gown. This is bad. And so I look up this dress and I'm like, uh, someone sold us Jason Wu knockoff fabric. This is bad. <gasps> this is very, yeah. very bad. I know. I'm like, okay. Oh my God. You're going to be on like the first feed on diet product. I know. I was <laughs> I like, know. jump out of bed. I'm like so sick. I'm like, the, the suit has to be pulled off this website right now. Pull that Instagram post of the suit side by side with the gown. Like this is very, very bad. Like mm-hmm. obviously we did not look to knock off Jason Wu. I don't think it was even on anybody's radar, but the vendor offered us a fabric that was a knockoff of Jason Wu's fabric, or maybe it was mm-hmm. his extra fabric. Who even knows? Yeah. But like, yeah, I don't think the vendor knew that either. That's how like insidious this like material and print knockoff market is, you know, and the vendor didn't want to take the suit back. And I was like, we literally cannot sell this. Like you need mm-hmm. to hold your mill accountable or something like this is this, we just can't have this because you know what's going to happen is Diet Prada is going to post this and say that we knock off Jason Wu, which we would literally never do. It wouldn't mm-hmm. even make sense yeah. for us to do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it makes it makes a lot of sense from like again from the print side, but you know, I I do think that it's so the web is so really just complicated and windy to the point where you have no clue really what it took for that garment to be made. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost like if you had to hire a detective to figure out the different steps it took to get to that end result. Oh, totally. That detective would fail immediately. Nobody, even Sherlock Holmes would not be able to crack this case. Like it's, it's so intertwined and, 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 and really going back to what I said about my experience at that footwear company, I mean, let's even talk about shoes for a second. I I went back and said about that $5 sandal that we were going to try to pay our factory like $1.50 to make for us. I mean, think about on top of just how cheap it is to make, there are so many toxic chemicals that are like within the working conditions to make these shoes. The glues are so harmful that they cause cancer, reproductive Mm -hmm. damage. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are certain countries that like will ban the use of certain like glues, like that has like things like benzene in it, which I had to like look up because I was getting sick every time I would go before a trip to China because I already knew it was going to be very rigorous, I would always have that digestive issue. But then when I would come back, I would have a respiratory issue. So my practitioner, my nurse practitioner at that time was like, okay, I'm going to send you to this doctor. We'll have to figure this out because this, and I used to travel all the time and it would happen constantly. So, um, and then it turns out that after finally, he was like, okay, give me a scenario as to what's been going on. Where have you been staying? What have you been eating? What have you been exposing yourself to? 
and I would explain. And then they're like, okay, I need to give you um, an assignment. You need to go back and ask your factory what is in those glues. Because I always could remember the smell of melting plastic and the smell of glues. And then just basically, especially during winter season, when we would cut plush, which is that like fake flight like fuzzy stuff you know mm-hmm. um the, the lint would just like fly all oh, over the place yeah and i didn't wear masks then like this was pre-pandemic nobody wore masks not even the factory workers wore masks and i <sighs> felt like it was just rude to wear a mask when everybody else wasn't wearing a mask that type of thing it's just really bizarre but right i would be, i would be the same way i totally get that i would also be like i don't want to feel like a princess or something. Yes. And I always ate with the factory workers instead of being put in this like nice room, you know, to like eat with the bosses. I always insisted to eat with the factory workers. Like I just, I, it was always something that I felt like I needed to make a connection with the people that were at least executing the styles I was creating. Right. So, um, interesting as I was doing the research and asked, they just sent me like basically the, the labels of the glue. And then I had to have um, somebody in the office translate them for me and get this. One of the ingredients that sticks into my mind is formaldehyde. Oh, that is on (laughs) so much stuff. Like I was reading about how a lot of active wear is treated with formaldehyde. So when you wear it the first time, you're literally wearing formaldehyde on your body. I mean, that's, that's what they use to like embalm Embalm. people. Yeah. 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 Um, There was also um, ethyl acetate. I don't know if you guys know that, but it's cancerous. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also um, ammonia. Which uh, I think about that and I'm just like, man, these are such like weird things. But I had to look them up because I was like, what is that? They also sometimes will have, and these are like chemicals and primers basically that are used to treat the materials before that they can actually adhere into what other, what other material you want to adhere them to. There's acetone, you know, which if pure acetone, you guys, I mean, who wants to inhale pure acetone. I mean, that's like, what you, that's what you use to dissolve your gel manicure. Like that's mm-hmm, insane. Yep. <laughs> so imagine, and sometimes the factory workers live in the factory too. And a lot of the times they don't really even have weekends. None of them have weekends. So imagine all of the, the hours that you spend within, and I was only there for three weeks and I was already sick by the time I came home. So imagine how that would be like for somebody who has been working there for a long periods of time like just how how bad and damaging it is to your body so that's one cost right of this two dollar mm-hmm. sandal and then on top of that um again just the labor um this going back to that beaded sandal conversation i basically you know i kind of walked in um and i was just like none of these sandals look the same and I get it. They're all hand beaded. So there's some slight like, you know, variance. And we actually did put that in the tag, but some of them just look really different, mm-hmm. you know. And I had a, um, a quality control person who worked directly for our company. Um, and he basically said, it's fine. It looks fine. But then when we got the shipment in L.A., my boss called me. I was still in China. And she, he was like, you need to do a sur- surprise inspection. You need to open every box you can. 
because the rest of the shipment wasn't there yet because it had to be distributed to or divided into two different factories, right? Right, yeah. So I walk in there and they were just like, no, you can't let her go in there. I already knew Mm. they were speaking obviously in Mandarin. I couldn't understand, but I knew that there was something going on. So um, basically I just had to go and I started to cut open the boxes. And of course, some of them were falling apart and some some of the shipment wasn't still finished. They still hadn't completed it. And I basically said, well, where are they? Aren't they supposed to be in this factory? And I was like, let's go there. And they're like, no, it's not in this factory. And I'm like, but where is it? And so I had to be driven to basically, and it wasn't even really like, a factory. It was just like a village. And then there was just like people outside, like just sitting. And honestly, in my mind, I'm just like, these, they look so young. Like some of these people look so young and there's no regulations. Obviously it wasn't at a factory setting. And, um, at the end of the day, I think, um, we took a big hit just, we, we, we just couldn't deliver it. And we got extremely punished for it, obviously. But that was basically the tipping point of my career at that company. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it anymore. It was just so hard. On top of that, I was, I got threatened by um, one of the people that had, um, was like part owners of the company. He only had 1% of the company and he had been there for such a long time. He, long time. He was like a true shoe dog. He had, I mean, he had worked there since he was like 18 and he was already like 72 and had worked for that company for that wow, long. Wow, that's crazy. It's insane. So the story behind it was um, we were, were working for this retailer and there was this construction that just sold them thousands and thousands of sales every year. Mm-hmm. But it was actually brought in by him, by this person that I worked with. Unbeknownst to this company, we actually owned two companies that was under our umbrella, but that that com- that retailer didn't know that we owned that both companies. They were uh-huh. looked at as separate companies. You Stop. Know? That is crazy. Yeah. Isn't that insane? So we were very careful to make sure they would never discover that two competing vendors were actually owned by one company. That, I wonder how often that's happening. Oh, I'm sure it happens a lot because they also, they were based in New York. We bought them out, you know, and we just never... We just never announced the the acquisition and that construction was, is their bread and butter. Like they, they've made millions out of that construction, but finally a new designer came and was like, I'm sick and tired of this construction. I know it makes a lot of money, but I'm sick and tired of it. I want us to like aspire to be somebody cooler, like, you know, like, um, DV or whatever. I don't, I don't know, you know, so Basically, there was a memo that went out and said, here's the construction. We are going to fish it to all the vendors now. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, I was the other quote unquote competing vendor. So my boss was like, OK, go to China and just like build a line from this construction. That entire time, I thought that he had already spoken to the New York office and told them that we were all doing this. They know. But he, unfortunately, that part owner of the company ended up seeing my work at his factory and because we use that factory for that construction, they're really good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, these are not my designs who designed these. And they're like, well, Selena did. So listen to this insanity. He booked the flight that same day to come back to LA. He knew I was already arriving that day and he was still scheduled to like be there for another two weeks. He just arrived there. He literally booked a flight 
And he timed it perfectly where my boss and the owner of the company were out of on business. And he asked the secretary, when is Selena coming in? And the secretary was like, okay, this is her schedule. He apparently sat in his office and just stared at his computer and not doing anything for three <laughs> hours. This is not, this is insane. And he, when I walked in and I'm jet lagged as fuck. Right. And I'm mm-hmm. just like coming in at like 12 o'clock or one in the afternoon. He corners me in his room, in his in his office and shuts the door behind him. He locks it. He closes this bl- the blinds to his office. So at this point, I'm this just like so dramatic. <laughs> oh, my God. I was just like, what is happening? I seriously froze. I just like froze and I was like, what is going on? Because I thought this dude was cool. I mean, again, he was 72. He was like my grandfather. We went on trips together. He used to tell me stories about like when he was really cool and would like hang out with like (laughs) Steve Madden and like go to parties and all this stuff. And, you know, I thought he was a cool guy and he would like send me materials and, you know, and all of a sudden his eyes were shaking, his hands were shaking And like right in front of me, basically pointed inches to my face. And he was just like, what the fuck are you doing? And basically started (laughs) to just go off. And I, Amanda, I just literally remember my eyes, just like tears, just rolling down. And then finally I was like, I need to leave. I couldn't even, those were just my words. Uh. I need to leave. And I basically just like walked out. Wow. Um, and then I called my boss and of course, like, you know, he called me back immediately and he's like, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. And I'm like, well, what are you guys going to do about it? I, I really feel threatened and I don't want to work with him anymore. I don't want to travel with him, you know? And, um, he, they were like, we can't, he's like a part owner of the, the, the company. Like, I'm sorry. You know, you just have to live with it. And I basically said, I need to take two weeks, like a mental break. Like Mm -hmm. I have just been traveling nonstop. Um, My, you know, my husband basically was just like so afraid that our relationship was going to fall apart because of this job. Mm -hmm. Um, I was exhausted. I had seen so many things. I already knew that there was something wrong with this industry, Mm -hmm. but seeing it firsthand like this and on top of the, the drama and just like the psychopathic attitude that I've had to deal with. I was just beaten to the ground, even to the point where I felt like I just, I hate to compare this to something like domestic violence because I don't take that very lightly. I Mm -hmm. know people who have had that experience, but this is kind of like a form of it. It was like a form of it. Oh, I agree. I feel like these work relationships can get really abusive and be very traumatic. You know, like I, it's not okay. You know, it's absolutely not okay. And despite the fact that I felt like I was making a lot of money and I was buying all the designer shoes that I wanted, (laughs) it was not enough. When you're young, you feel like that can fill a hole in your, in your spirit, because you feel like now you belong. Like I literally was driving this very expensive car and, you know, I finally was like, you know, I, I got this like amazing apartment. I was like throwing parties, but at the end of the day, I just felt like such an imposter. 
I just felt like I wasn't being myself. I also looked back at that girl who lived in that apartment in the West side. And I was just like, this is not the same person anymore. And I did not like what I was becoming. And I basically took the two weeks off. And in that time, um, I did a talk at a college. Um, it, it was uh, at this university and my old professor became the chair of the, defa- the fashion department. And I was just being surrounded by all these young people who were showing me their senior thesis and their collections. And I basically was like, wow, I want this. I want to come back to this. I want to erase like some of these problems, you know, um, that I've had as far as my soul just being like ripped apart from what I've seen, but also people, you know, your listeners today, a designer, sometimes they think, oh, it's so glamorous. You're just sketching and doing all of this stuff. But in reality, that's really not the job of a designer anymore. It's no. more execution and just making sure you're being a manager of how of basically from inception to like from idea to it being on the shelves. Like that's your job is to just make sure nothing shit doesn't hit the fan mm-hmm, like that's mm-hmm. that's your job and what kind of a job is that on top of that you're already creating to such a like a destructive industry of you know what it's doing to our planet and just consumerism in general and at that point I didn't wear any I've never worn any of the stuff that I designed in my 15 years of working I just have to say that right now I only have maybe one St. John suit and one St. John jacket that I've had mm-hmm. all my other jobs I've never kept anything from from there or worn any of it I've always just thrifted all this entire time um And so I was just like, so fake. I felt like such a fake, like being, doing this job, selling this product, yet I didn't even believe in it. I mean, I think that's really common. I've been having so many conversations lately with designers and buyers, and that's a recurring theme that you work for these brands, but you, you don't believe in it. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't wear the product. You don't like it. You don't respect it. You don't think it's nice. How sad is that? to create things, use your creativity, like your gift to make things that you don't even like or respect. That's just so sad. It's very, very sad. And the one thing that I've learned, you know, from getting older and just having a kid and the pandemic, the, the we are given one life on this planet. Mm-hmm. And this may sound really like, you know, um, kind of cheesy, but I... I look at my own mother who I always envision in my mind as this like really fashionable girl um, and woman and just like always so fabulous. She's now 72. She's still fabulous, but she, I just, we recently went to Mexico on a trip and I remembered she used to like outpace me on everything. She walks really fast and now she can't outpace me as much as she used to. And then it just finally hit me. I need to make these next couple of years or decades in my life make like they just have to count like I can't I can't look back on my life feeling like I my biggest regret was just wasting I feel like a gift that I had been given Mm -hmm. um and so the teaching portion of it really put me down to earth because I now um was gonna be I I ended up obviously quitting my shoe job and um my my old professor was like, you can work here 
and it's literally going to be like $32,000 a year, which was exactly the amount I was making at my first job, right? So come full (laughs) circle, but it was an adjunct professor responsibility. Um, I could still freelance and do things I like, and I could finally build a family. I bought my house. Um, I basically had my baby and I was making literally not even a quarter of the money I was making at my footwear job yet. I was able to save more money because I was so much more conscious of my spending. Mm -hmm. I was no longer constantly bombarded by trends because when you're in this industry, right? You and I Mm -hmm. talked about this. You're constantly in the stores shopping, 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 shopping. And like, you just want to look cool too. And like, you feel like, oh my God, that's awesome. So sometimes you'll buy yourself something while you're shopping as Mm -hmm. well. And you never feel, you never feel fulfilled. You're never like, this is it. Now I have everything. It's like, you're constantly filled with just this desire to buy more and more and more. It's, it's so crazy. I thought it was just me and everybody I've talked to is like, no, I have the same problem. No, it's exactly everybody I feel like in this industry. And it's because there's also this performance and upkeep that you need mm-hmm. to basically, I, I just remembered, I worked for this other brand that does runway and they also do like mass retail. And I would, I wore my like Chuck Taylors like to work every single day because I, my job was like lugging fabric up and down the stairs and stuff. And I'm not going to be walking around like, you know, my old boss in Louboutin heels. Like that's just ridiculous, you know, um, mm-hmm. for, for somebody like me who had a job title like that, like it was just not going to happen. And she just looked, looked at me and she was just like, Oh my God, aren't you like, don't you have a, another pair of shoes? Like you're wearing those again. You know, uh, something. I hate that. And it's- I'm like, lady, you are in the runway division and you literally are like the head designer where you're like, you, that's your job, you know? And I mean, part of me felt like when I was so young, then I was so ashamed by that comment, especially in front of other fashionable girls. And let's, let's also dial this back a little bit. I've never felt like my race or my color was against my success or like my ability to succeed. Like I felt, I always, and I'm very lucky that I'm not subjected to racism. Like some of our fellow designers who may be like African-American or Latino or, you know, I, I feel like we all have a level of discrimination that happens within the industry. But I also know for a fact that I've walked into multiple rooms with upper management and people that make decisions and none of them look like me. And none. And also, I'm not only am I like a, my, a person of a minority color, I also figure wise, I'm a bigger girl. Like I've actually fluctuated sizes. I, I uh, used to wear a 16. That was the biggest size I'd ever been. And then I fluctuated from like 16 to 14 to 12. And part of that too was I developed a a really horrible eating habit, basically from the stress that I've been subjected to from my job. And I just remembered going to all these like sample like sales and like, you know, even um, going to like meetings and I just felt very uncomfortable. And I think that's the reason why I bought shoes. Because shoes actually don't discriminate whether you're a big girl or a small girl. It's true. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's true. And honestly, I was, I'm sassy and I feel like I can strut 
strut the hallways of a of a place like anybody can and I always felt like I had such a personality and I obviously I like to talk I'm such a talker (laughs) (laughs) um that you know I just felt like I could be a part of this group but at the end of the day I also knew I had to work five times harder because I also knew that there were girls and this is honest to god truth I've had conversations with my white friends in the fashion industry, as well as my non-white friends in the industry, and they all agree with me. And they say, usually the prettier girl and the whiter girl always gets the advantage first. Oh, 100%. The thinnest, prettiest, whitest girl is always going to get the promotion. And it's like what you expect. I would also say it's the thinnest, prettiest, whitest, richest girl too. Yes, thank you. Adding that last piece too, absolutely. Because I would work with people where I'd be like, how are you so rich? You know, like, why are you working here? And those would be the people who would be continuously successful. The weight thing is, I mean, listen, I would reach points in certain jobs where I felt like I had such little control over my own life and what I did for 50, 60 hours a week that I would starve myself because at least it was one thing I could control. Mm -hmm. And plus the way I would look at it is if I could just get down to like a four, I'll probably get a promotion. I mean, how insane is that? Do men ever sit around and think about things like that? Oh, no. Are people in other industries sitting around thinking if I could just starve myself down a size or two, I would definitely, I'll be division manager. No. I mean, it's insane. And I, you know, I'm white. It's the only advantage I've had coming into the fashion industry (laughs) because I'm, I grew up poor. I'm not super thin. I'm not this mega babe, uh, but I would see how no one. You are a mega babe. Oh, I'm just going to I'm going to give you that, <laughs> the mega babe part. <laughs> but like people, I would see in the rare instance in which we were interviewing a candidate of color, which let me tell you, does not happen very often. I mean, I'm sure you can agree with me on that. Like, oh, HR is not even bringing these people in, right, that are not white and pretty. And it would always be like, well, I'm just not sure if they're a cultural fit. You know, they're not a brand fit. It would be things like that. And so in the rare instance where someone who wasn't thin, rich, and white and beautiful came in for an interview, the excuses for not hiring that person would be all over the place and make no sense. It would suddenly be like... I think that person's a job hopper. And I'd be like, we all are. That's the industry, right? What are you talking about? Or it, you know, it, I had a creative director once say to me, you know, actually it would be really great if we could hire a black person for our team, because then we could never be accused of cultural appropriation. And I was like, the worst. I know. I know. I was like, oh my gosh, hear yourself say that. Like, that's not okay. I literally, this was later in my career, so I was able to be like, that's racist. I mean. <laughs> I was literally able to say that. Jeez. <laughs> but yeah. I, that's I, the- I, it is really, we've already discussed in the few hours we've been talking about how ugly this industry is, yet there are more to talk about, you know, know, which is just so <laughs> to me. And I talk to my husband about this because he's in the entertainment industry and I ask him to, and of course they also have their issues. Every industry does, mm-hmm. but there is absolutely no way that the amount of kind of just like the levels of just this 
really bad imagery of the situations and all of these things that happen just for the sake of trash fashion, right? Mm-hmm. It's just not, it's, I, sometimes I think about it and I'm like, I just need to switch careers. And I actually had gone through that in my mind so many times because I, why do I love something so much yet hate it so much at the same time? Right. It's, it's definitely something that I've grappled with because I've always loved putting together an outfit mm-hmm. and making clothes and like being this person that I am when I put on this outfit versus that one. Like I love style, you know, mm-hmm. but the fashion industry itself, I guess I hate fashion. That's what it is. I love yeah. style. I love clothes. I hate fashion because the longer I've worked in it, the uglier it becomes. Like it reached a point for me where I was like, I don't want to go shopping. I don't want to look at clothes. I just, I, I, I can't, I can't do it anymore. You know, I can't, I see everything that's happening underneath it and it's disgusting. It's like if you go to a restaurant and you walk by the kitchen and you looked in and there were like cockroaches all over oh the floor. Oh my God, You would right? never eat there again. And that's or actually, like, they're literally putting shit in your food. Yeah, like, exactly. Exactly. I think that's an even better metaphor. Like you'd never eat there again, right? You wouldn't even, you wouldn't even finish that meal. You would just turn around and leave. And that's what this industry is. It's garbage clothes that hurt people to like making them hurts people. Right. Mm -hmm. It keeps people in poverty. It rots in our landfills and all the people who work in the industry are being affected in all these really brutal, terrible ways. Like it's cushy to work in the office, right. In the corporate office, but chances are you're not getting paid well and you deal with all kinds of racism and classism and sizeism and just shitty bitchy behavior it's not a good job for anyone. I mean, I guess maybe the people in charge, I don't even know. Maybe they're having a terrible time too. Maybe they're sitting around saying, if I could just go down two sizes, I'd be CEO. I don't know. I <laughs> I honestly think as women in general, we're always very hard on ourselves because of the imagery that's been put in front of us. I mean, just to add like the advertising and the marketing that the fashion industry pushes for. And I'm just really excited now because I feel like we're coming to a turning point. Like I, I actually have like Vogue Runway, the app on my phone, you know, um, and when I, I when I, you know, turn it on, I've seen very recently plus size models you know, people of color, like walking that first like runway shot. Um, cause there's like a visual that comes up never in a million years would that have happened if like the protests that are going on right now would have happened or like some of the, just as in social media, just unrest and like the complaining that a lot of people are doing now, because we just feel like as, a an industry, we have really not given inclusivity to everybody else. You know, this industry is very fake and it's Mm -hmm. just, it, it really promotes the idea that if you have a designer bag and you are thin and you can wear the latest trends and you look great, that you should be the person to be, you should be aspiring to be that person. But now that's very insensitive and it's not cool anymore. And I embrace this trend that basically you may be all of these things, but if you are not number one, maybe giving back to your community or using your platform for the betterment of, um, of our, you know, of the messaging that's happening right now, if you're insensitive to people who may be struggling, like all of those things are now becoming fashionable. Mm -hmm. And I am 
obviously I'm afraid that some people who have a platform may just use it as a fake way to just kind of be like, okay, I'm just going to do this now because, you know, I don't want like all of the people that follow me to not follow me anymore because I'm insensitive. I don't want that happening too. But if you think about all of those like influencers that, I mean, I, I feel like the majority of us follow, like whether it's like Brian boy or like Daniel Bernstein from like, uh, what's, we, we were what? what yeah yeah or you know or maybe ami song from like song of style like think about that generation of influencers and how they've evolved and sometimes you look at their lives and you're just kind of like that is not real anymore right because it just becomes this thing of like it's a status now and it's such it's not real anymore compared to maybe when they were starting and so we look to new places for influence and hopefully the places that we aspire are authentic. And some, I think about that too, sometimes because I too am starting to have a following in social media and it's sort of just kind of happened really fast. Um, and I'm always sort of making sure that even if I only have 500 people following me or 10 people following me, that the message is the same and it's coming from a true place. Mm -hmm. And I really want to keep that because a lot of people have, you know, talked to me that are also from a minority group. And I am also not afraid to like show off my curves sometimes, even if it's like takes a lot of like guts to do it, you know, (laughs) and I'm not your ideal quote unquote model because I have to model my own clothes. But I've gotten so much good feedback about just like, you know, from just direct messaging of like somebody who's also Filipino. And she's just like, my God, like I it's so refreshing to see you on my feed. You know, and to me, that's amazing because I just felt like being in this industry for this long, I just didn't feel like I had enough people to directly relate to and feel comfortable with as far as like people that are within that same community as me or maybe same experiences, I guess is what I'm trying to say, that immigrant experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because there's so many of us in America, this country is built from immigrants, right? Totally. Whether your family immigrated here in like the 1800s or now, or just me, you know, from the 90s, like we're all still immigrants. And I just think that it's such a valid point of view. Like it, it matters, like representation matters. And I'm not just saying this to be PC or tell you that this is on trend. It's real. It really impacts people. It really impacts people. And I think for a lot of white people, that's kind of hard for them to understand because we've grown up only seeing white people in the media. I mean, look at Beverly Hills 90210, Mm -hmm. all white people. (laughs) I watched, I tried watching some reruns of it last summer because I loved that show when I was a teenager. And I was like, this show is so gross and in no way reflects (laughs) the world in which it was made, right? Because yeah. Not all people are white. Literally, if you watch that show, you would be under the expectation that every person who lives in LA is white. And you and I know it couldn't be further from the truth. That's like that's why I was so culturally shocked. I'm I sure. Mean, it's like the most diverse place. I lived in like a Latino neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. And I was just like, and I told my mom, I was like, where's the snow, man? Like, <laughs> when is it going to be winter so I can like wear coats and stuff? And my mom's like... Doesn't snow in LA. I'm like, I thought all of America snowed. And I thought all of America had white people. You know, not that I did not want 
other people. It's just you, there is this like just fakeness that comes across the screen and you buy into that. And I bought into it. Yeah. And I would say if you're white and you still can't understand this, well, think about how also everyone you see in TV and in magazines and all the biggest influencers, they're all really thin. You know, they all have a yep. certain type of hair. They kind of all have the same face. And like, if you don't see yourself reflected there, then you can see that this is problematic. And I think, I mean, you touched on something that is on my mind a lot too, where I feel like a lot of brands are now trying to be more diverse. And maybe I'm just being really cynical, but I feel like it's because they are afraid not to because they have to, or they're going to lose customers. But you know what? If they do it long enough, it will become habit and it will no longer be something they're trying to do. Because in the past, I mean, I've been in these meetings where they're laying out the photos of all the prospective models for some upcoming campaign. They don't even look at the models who aren't white. You know, like if there yeah. were any, if there was anyone there on the table who wasn't white, they were kind of pushed down to the end. That is so true, though, because I think there's a bunch of exposés that just happened in the modeling industry about that exactly. And it, it's just like this unwritten memo, but all the agencies use it and all the retailers right. do it, too. Well, I remember there was that whole thing with Reformation where the founder was like, the world's not ready oh. for a black model. And you're like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? And so now these retailers that brand by the way is the biggest scam oh my god don't get me started i <laughs> have always known that place is a scam it's like it's the most greenwashing ever oh. anything good for the community their clothes are poorly made they're super tiny and weird uh they're so expensive for what they are i mean it's, oh my god it's fast yeah. fashion it's fast yeah. fashion anyway i feel like these these uh retailers these art directors these creative directors are now being forced to bring people of color into the conversation as models. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're going to get used to doing that. And they won't subconsciously only look at the white models. I don't know. I don't want to get myself too excited because I don't trust anyone, but I want... Well, I mean, I think that cynicism is a natural reaction because you and I both know from have been working in this industry for such a long time and seeing it firsthand that there's a lot of things that companies do just because they want to save their butts for profit's sake. Mm -hmm. And even if it's fake, um, they will go through any lengths to basically try to save face or try to Mm -hmm. make sure that they're giving their, you know, their board of directors and stakeholders, like their, their, um, basically their rewards at the end of the year. I completely, and I know that again, from living in this capitalist consumerist society that we're in, but I do have to say, and this is statistic that is like proven and backed up this country's face and just the people that live in this country, the demographic is completely changed. It's changed Mm -hmm. and it's continuing to change. And it's just inevitable. And it's, it's basically not going to be sustainable for any brand anymore to basically ignore that fact. They will not have a choice. And maybe that's bad because they're not doing it out of genuine care for inclusivity. But I almost feel optimistic that the, the, basically the consumers are pushing them to do better. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And I honestly, it just refreshes me. Honestly, I had to I had to reevaluate my feed personally um, the last like pre-pandemic because I was starting to get I could see through some of the insensitivity and maybe some of the people that I used to follow in my early 30s that I felt are no longer where I am today. Like Mm -hmm. I just I saw them grow 
but not to the type of growth that I was going through. Um, and I have had to like delete a bunch of people because the, the thing about social media, it's, it's so powerful. It, it, we have such an addiction to our phones. We are constantly looking at imagery and whether or not we want to say, oh, it's not going to affect me. It affects us tremendously. It does. It's in your head. It all it is, is in there. Even if you, it's not like right in the front of it, it's behind everything that you do. I can, I can feel how it affects me. I I mean, a social media is, it, I feel like it affects us more than television and movies and magazines ever did. A hundred thousand percent. I think, and I, and I think it's really important sometimes to reevaluate that content and whether or not you end up in a bubble because you only subscribe and digest a particular notion of the world, um, then that's a problem. I feel like you need to reach out and really look at your feed and, and maybe follow certain things like, you know, like obviously um, your IG, Clothes Horse Podcast IG, because I think the information, even for somebody like me, who's, who I feel like knows a lot about the fashion industry, you have put stuff on your feed that is educating me daily. And I would much rather have that over like a girl who's like super cute and wears like a different handbag every day. <laughs> I agree. I have like purged those people. I don't need that. I don't need that. I feel like in the era of the pandemic, especially where so many people have lost their jobs, lost their loved ones, live in kind of this fear and uncertainty. The fact that there are still people on Instagram being like, look at my new bag makes mm-hmm. me like want to fight someone. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, and, and that's another thing too. And I think about it in my own Instagram page and fine, it's all about the stuff that I do. But every single time I always have to make sure that I'm talking about the fact that mending matters. I talk about the fact that upcycling, if you, if you do it or you make yourself something, you make it for other people, or you are basically um, supporting a maker like myself and that impact that that does to your community. That was part two of three of my conversation with Selena. Isn't she the best guest ever? I also wanted to add that after I recorded the intro for this show, she became a Pegasus patron too. So look out for future ads from Selena on Close Horse. Thank you so much, Selena, for not only being the best guest, but also being a patron. Like, that's incredible. I'm, I feel really, really lucky. Don't forget to check out Selena's work on Instagram where you'll find her at Selena underscore Sanders. And that's S-E-L-I-N-A underscore Sanders, as in, like I said the last time, Steve Sanders, or I guess Colonel Sanders. Lots of famous Sanders out there. And Celine is one of them. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and maybe even subscribe and then you'll never miss an episode. And please tell a friend or coworker, maybe your mom, your neighbor, I always value a personal recommendation for a podcast way more than an ad or an algorithm suggestion. I mean, we're all influencers, aren't we? Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I see it. I love it. It makes every day better. So thank you so much. Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? Do you want to be a guest on Clothes Horse? 
drop me a line at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM via Instagram at closehorsepodcast. Also, if you have a question like Elena, hit me up because I love researching the answers. If I can't find the answer for you, I'll find someone who can. If you can't get enough of podcasts, then check out my other show, The Department. I co-host with my friend Kim. We talk about trends, taste, our obsessions, all kinds of weird things. And this week's episode is about candy. And listen, I don't want you to get too excited, but one of us may or may not have almost peed our pants from laughing. So you don't want to miss it. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. And special super duper thanks to his parents, Gerald and Cindy, for buying me awesome lawn care equipment that I literally would not have ever been able to buy for myself. And then patiently teaching me how to use all of it. I guess I'm a country girl now. All right. Bye. Bye.